Um, unofficially, we call this group the dudes. <laughs> Thank you, dudes. It's getting official. Is that what you said, Mike? Um, I think if they continue to wear black, we're going to have to call you something else. The, the caches. Maybe the Dukes will just uh, slip John Wayne in there. Thank you very much uh, for the blessings of music this morning. Good morning, church. How are you? Has the Lord watched out for you this week? Are you still breathing? The answer to the question is yes, if you're still breathing. Um, this morning we're going to, uh, we're going to, to initiate a, a short sermon series. Um, I'm, it's going to come right at the end of the, of the sermon today, the, the entrance into this new series. But um, the sermon series is going to give you a little bit of a background of a, di- a disciple who really changed the face of Christianity um, when it was in desperate need. Uh, born in uh, 1483, lived 62 years. And in those 62 years, absolutely and completely changed the face of Christianity. His name was Martin Luther. And uh, this year is the 500th anniversary, coming up on October 31st, which is what? All Hallows' Eve, also known as Halloween. And on that date, 500 years ago this year, he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the church. Now, before you think, oh man, what a, what a wild, crazy thing to go to the church and nail something on the door. Well, yes and no, because this door was the regular place to put up uh, notices and bulletins that related to church matters like a theological discussion. So um, this, was, this particular door of the church was kind of a bulletin board. And so before you think, oh, man, he he went and just pounded on the front door of the church. Well, not quite that. But still, the point was he was was laying a challenge before the church about the way they were doing business. And we'll talk about that as we work uh, through this this morning. And um, we're going to be looking at Matthew. And as we we turn in the the book of Matthew, I want you to to join me. And... um, Before we start, okay, we'll go with that slide. I thought it was on this slide. I just before we start, I wanted to do one one last one little piece. Isn't it interesting how one text can change your thinking about stuff? The Lord can just open some simple little thing, something that you may have overlooked, something that you read but didn't catch the real power of it until you come back to it. This is an example today of that kinds of thing. Um, this, is a, this is a moment. That's why this guy, this discussion today, because in this man's life, his, his world and ours as a result pivoted on the text that's in front of you. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. That became the pivotal text that changed everything for him. And so I just want you to think about that. The just shall live by faith. It's actually an Old Testament quote. It's not, Paul is not speaking from his own, uh, his own words here. He's quoting an Old Testament passage. The just shall live by faith. 
And so as we uh, open to Matthew 21 today, I want to invite you to join me for a word of prayer. Father, we open your word knowing that you are the, the writer, you are the author, you are the finisher. And so today we pray that as we talk today, today, as we listen, as we are in your presence, we will be under the direction of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the angels of heaven to walk up and down the aisles. And we pray that you would minister to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 21. Does anybody recognize the picture? It's a picture of of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives. Obviously, it's an artist's representation. This is not a photograph. Um, Of the folks who were there, they were were following or, or leading and walking with Jesus down the hill as he comes in. That's what we'll find in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 7. They brought to him a donkey. And because that is the most common donkey that most Americans know of, I put his picture up there because... I knew that many of you would think of him when I just mentioned the word donkey. They brought to him a donkey, the colt of a donkey, and, they, and on him they threw their garments, and Jesus sat. Jesus comes in riding on this donkey, coming down the hill into Jerusalem, gathered with this crowd around him as you saw in the previous picture. And as he's riding down, this, this becomes a very big public spectacle. The people in Jerusalem, the people are around the community, they're, they're watching intently. There's a lot of folks gathered for the holidays there that day. There's a lot of folks gathering for the Passover and the Pentecost that will follow. And as they have been gathering, the groups of people are, are camping out on the hillsides around. They're staying with family and friends. They're crowding in to uh, any yard that they can sleep in. They've brought their bedrolls, but they are packed into the place on this spring day as Jesus hops on this little donkey and starts to ride down the hill, led by Lazarus, followed by his disciples, and the gathering of people starts to grow. A crowd starts to build around him. This is not unusual for Jesus. Crowds build around him a lot. But in this particular day, the crowd starts shouting Hosanna to the son of David. They start testifying that this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it starts to swell with interest because all of Israel has been waiting since its founding for the day when the Messiah would show up. And now crowds of people are standing on the hill opposite the temple shouting that the day has arrived crying out to anyone who will listen that they recognize this man as the, come, uh, as the, the long-desired Messiah. And as they shout it, it builds momentum and people gather and the entire hillside is lined with people as he comes down this little trail. And as he does so, they're laying down their clothes in front of him. They're laying palm fronds in front of him, making the way straight, making the path flat, making the path perfect for his entrance. The idea was, this is to, this, the idea for them was to exalt the coming of this messianic figure that some were barely aware of and some knew very well. This was in contrast and in comparison with what they knew of the entry of the leaders of Rome into cities. This is an artist's rendition of the entrance of Caesar after a victorious battle into Rome. And they would come down the main street 
And they would come with a gathering of soldiers around them, carrying the bounty of the war they had just fought. And as they carried this in processional, everyone was hailing Caesar as a god. And when Jesus comes in, he comes in not on a white steed, he comes in instead on this quiet little donkey's colt. It's a comparison and a contrast with what they were expecting from the Messiah and what they were accustomed to by the Romans. So when they see this picture of Jesus coming down the hill, they both see the comparison of him coming in, riding in like that in this processional, surrounded by people. By the way, Lazarus, having been recently raised from the dead, is the first fruits of the resurrection in that time. And as a result of that, you have the victory, the bounty of the war having been won, the man leading the donkey. As they come down the hill, the crowd swelling, this kind of entry is in the back of everyone's cultural mind. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people were all around him and they were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest of the heavens. So they're declaring who Jesus is for anyone who will listen. They're making a public statement about what they believe about the man on that donkey. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. And they said, who is this? Who is this? They knew what the processional was about. They knew what the declaration was, but they didn't know the guy on the donkey. They knew what the crowd was saying. They understood what was being said. They understood the spectacle of the moment, but they didn't know the guy on the donkey. They didn't know who this guy was. And so they asked those who had been shouting, Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this person who's coming, that's coming in on the donkey, who's making this big noise, who's setting himself up as the new king of Israel? And the people said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, Galilee. Now, you've got to understand if you're new to the Bible, that they did not think prophets came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth is a tiny, little forgotten backwater of a place with really no streets, with really barely houses. A lot of the people who lived in Nazareth used the caves as part of their housing. So they were kind of cave dwellers. This is kind of going back to some Stone Age behavior. They used the caves as part of their dwellings and their businesses. It's a very likely thing that the shop of Joseph was at least partly in a cave that Jesus had grown up at least partly in a cave. So these people, these, these, uh, these city folk from Jerusalem, the, the, the hoi polloi, the cultured, the wise, the, the well-read, they didn't think there was anybody from Nazareth of Galilee who was much of anything. And here he comes that day riding in as a de- declaration that he is the new king of Israel. It's a weird declaration because he has no army. And the only wealth he shows is the healing of a man named Lazarus who's leading the donkey. It's a weird contrast. 
it is overlooked by us, but it wouldn't have been overlooked by them. It would have, it's, it's not even understood by us, but everybody there would have gotten what was happening. He's entering in a declaration. He's comparing and contrasting the way that the Caesars would enter into their communities, the way the Roman leaders would enter into their communities. And as he comes in, it's just creating this uproar. The whole city of Jerusalem is in an uproar as he entered. Now let me ask you a question. What would happen if this were happening today? What would be done? What would they be doing? Well, before you would make an entrance like this, you'd call the local news news media, right? You'd get some reporters there. You'd get your face on television. You'd make sure lots of people caught this picture, right? You'd want to make sure this got, got spread everywhere. Well, what Jesus is doing is the same thing. By walking into Jerusalem or marching into Jerusalem like this, with this gathering of people, he is making this big Bold public statement designed to make sure everyone knows who he is and what he's doing. So once everybody is sort of standing around wondering or shouting that he is the Messiah, what should he do now? Should he go do interviews? Should he go and find the leaders of Israel and start trying to convince them to be on his side? What should he do now? What would you do? What do you think is smart? What do you think is wise? If you were his publicist, what would you encourage him to do? You know what Jesus does next? Well, we'll get to that. Jesus enters the temple. An expected move. He goes to where the religious leaders are. That's what you'd expect him to do. He goes to the temple where the religious leaders are. But when he goes into the temple, he doesn't seek out the religious leaders to try to convince them that he's the new Messiah, that he's the king of the Jews. Instead, he starts tearing the place up. This does not seem like a very appropriate press move. This is like Donald Trump coming into, coming into Jerusalem. He's tearing the place up. He's draining Jerusalem's swamp. He enters the temple and he begins to drive out All the people who are buying and selling. So the first thing he does is kick out all the customers. He he runs all the customers out of the the, the, the temple. Get out of here. All of these people who are standing in line waiting to do their purchases, waiting to make their purchases, are being run out. So all those who are doing the selling, all those folks who are trying to get their stuff sold, are kind of disrupted. What's going on here? You're messing with my business. You can do a lot of things, but stay out of my business's business. But that's not what he does. He starts throwing all the people out. He drives out the buyers. He drives out the sellers. And then he finds those who are selling animals for sacrifice. He goes and he finds those who are selling animals for sacrifice. Now you've got to, before you, before you let your, your mind slip off this picture, remember the cultural norms that are going on. Remember that this is a very corrupt system that very often the people would come from their home with a sacrifice to offer. They've examined this lamb. It looks fine to them. There are no blemishes. They've gotten it all the way here. If, if they're up in Galilee, it could be 70 miles that they've brought this lamb along with them. And they get it there, and the priests invariably, the sellers invariably would look over their lamb and say, you know, this one doesn't make it. It's just not blemish-free. You're going to have to buy one. And the story that we're told is that these same guys would sometimes take this animal, if the person would say, well, I, can't, I don't really want to drag it all the way back home. Would you, would you like me just to take it and you know, we can put it out with the other sheep? And resell it to somebody else. 
It's an extremely corrupt system. Now, what happens if you come seeking the grace of God and you don't have money to buy a lamb? You have no access to the grace of God because you do not have the money. There's provisions. You could buy a dove or a pigeon. But if you don't have the money even for a dove or a pigeon, you are completely locked out from the grace of God. Completely locked out because your wallet's not thick enough. Could you see how this might disturb God? It might bother Jesus just a little bit. So he starts kicking all these, th- these things out. So he's turning over tables. He's tossing over chairs. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling the doves. Now that's the money changers is the other group. You see, when you came to buy your lamb at the temple, you couldn't just use regular money. Regular money was foul and unclean. So you had to use temple money. So wherever you came from, you had you know, some money from the Romans. Maybe you had some Greek coins. Maybe you had even gotten some money from as far away as Persia. But this money that you had that you could exchange, silver pieces, gold pieces, copper pieces, it was unclean and unfit to be used in the temple. And so there was somebody there conveniently willing to exchange your, rate, exchange your money at a rate set by them. I don't know if you've ever gone into a foreign country to exchange money. Do you always question what's going on there? Every time I go to a foreign country and have to exchange money, I have this feeling that I'm getting ripped off just a little. You know, I give them my money. They give me back the equivalent, according to them, in the local money. And I don't really know. I'm not really sure. I suppose I should be wise enough to to go look at the exchange rate on my phone immediately before and haggle with them, but they don't they're in there for a profit. They're not giving me the straight rate. These guys were making a living by simply saying your money's not good here. All of these things the priesthood was complicit with. They were involved with and willing to let continue to happen because this money was flowing eventually into the temple. Interesting, isn't it? Can you see why Jesus might be just a tad upset? But still, man, this does not seem like the best. You just come down the hill to the adulations of the crowd and the first thing you have to do, you couldn't go in and just quietly talk and uh, encourage and maybe tell the priest this isn't a good idea, see if you can negotiate, you know, send somebody in on your behalf. You got, you know, somebody who can probably talk to him. Judas is pretty good at talking. Get him in there. And yet, Jesus walks in recognized by all as the new Messiah. And begins tearing things up. What's funny to me is as Jesus makes his declaration about what he's doing, he simply quotes the scriptures to them. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And they all start red and running for the exits. You know, I, just, I have this picture of the money changers trying to grab as much money as they can and heading for the door, you know, filling whatever gaps they have in their clothes, holding it in the bundles in the middle. They're just trying to keep it from, loot, from being complete loss as they head out the door as this madman with a stick is chasing them. Sheep running around, birds flying off, chairs and tables turned over. Pretty, pretty messy Complete disarray. Not really what you would think of the Jesus is coming to town for a worship service moment. 
But then, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But before we get to the last phrase, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Now I've put up a picture. That picture is a one of the two remaining signs that were outside the temple. And outside the temple, actually painted red was this sign in bold Greek letters. And the sign said, if you're a Gentile, or if you are unclean, and you come into this temple, now there were certain places you could come, there were some sort of edges you could go into, but if you were to come into the the heart of this temple, if you were unclean, or if you were a Gentile, the, the threat that closes this is very interesting. Basically what it says is what happens to you is on you. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting little threat because we don't know what that means, but it sounds kind of daunting. If you come through this door, what happens to you is on you. And these stella were placed around the place to keep out people like the blind and the lame along with the Gentiles. And when Jesus clears the temple of the obstructions that have prevented people from getting to God, who comes in? but the blind and the lame. You know what's funny about this thing? The whole setup at the temple was designed to create distance between the holy of holies where God was and man. There's a reason for that, but this isn't a sermon about the temple. But when Jesus comes, the holy of holies is wherever he is. And so the blind and the lame And anybody else who wants to has full access to God that morning. No buying, no selling, no pigeons, no lambs, just you and God. You see, what he was doing that day was marking the beginning of a revolution. A revolution that changed everything about the way we worship God. He made, a, he made a turn in the direction the church was been, had been heading for all those years. For all the, those years that the church has existed, it had been going down one path. And Jesus on this day stamped his final moment, stamped this moment. I am the Messiah. That's why he came in on the donkey. And this is how I do church. I have made a way for you to get directly to God without the blood of a lamb or a pigeon, or a dove. Without having your money cleaned before you can reach. It's that kind of pivotal moment that the leading priests had a, had a chance to, to scoop in and accept. You think of what would have happened that day if the priests would have said, this is the Messiah. He's come and He's changing everything. He's, he's fixing everything. He's chased out all the bad things and He's, he's cleaning up the place and, and it's great and it's awesome and we'll go after Him. If the priests had recognized what He was doing and become followers that day, everything would be different. Jesus is taking the church in a new direction. They have a choice whether they're going to go with Him or not. The priests, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles No one questioned that they were amazing miracles. 
even the teachers of the temple, but, and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They weren't happy. They weren't pleased. They weren't excited for the people who were halt and lame and blind, who were now laughing and jumping and seeing. They were just indignant because the children were proclaiming this guy to be the Messiah. So I want to close with another place and another moment. So in this different place, in this different moment, we're bringing a different guy. Not a Jewish guy, German guy. Not a guy raised in, in and around Jerusalem, a guy raised in a small community, a small town in Germany. Comes from a family where his father was a generally just a laborer who eventually discovered some copper and started smelting copper and became middle class for the era. Had this promising young son, thought he wanted him to be a lawyer, and so began to try to push him in that direction and educate him. From seven years old on, he began to push him toward that. At about 21, this young man has a conversion moment. He had been thinking about the priesthood. He had been thinking about the call to follow after God. He was very serious about his faith, very serious about his religion, and tried hard to practice everything that he knew to be right about the way he was supposed to do church, the way he was supposed to do his walk with God. He's caught in a thunderstorm, big lightning and thunderstorm. He's out in, out in the middle of it. Think out on the golf course with a thunderstorm and a one iron. And as this thunderstorm is blowing over, he is so certain that he's going to die that he cries out to God. And I think in the buildup of the thinking that was going on in his mind about the priesthood, he cries out to God, if you rescue me, and he cries out to his patron saint, the patron saint of minors, if you rescue me, I will become a priest. The storm passes. He doesn't die. And he decides he's going to uphold what he said. Now, I want to, I want to stop you for a second. We in our lives, have probably made declarations like this. Most people do not have the backbone to follow through with them. So understand what kind of man you're dealing with. He made a public declaration in the middle of a field to just himself and God. And he's sticking with it for the rest of his life. He has to go face his father, who's very disappointed that he's going into the priesthood because his father thinks the priests are idiots, crooks, and that this whole idea of sneaking off into a monastery idea is horrible. But yet his son joins a monastery and takes all of the promise that his father had seen as that laying out in front of him and all of the hopes and dreams of his father and dashes him. They're so so. Struck. His dad is so struck that for two years they don't speak. And finally there's some reconciliation a couple years later. And Luther continues. As he enters the monastery, he takes it with great, great seriousness. He begins to pray for long hours. He tries to read everything he can read and understand everything he can understand about God. And as he struggles and battles and works at this, he recognizes in himself over and over again that though he 
thinks of doing the right thing, though he wants to do the right thing, he continues to do the wrong thing, if not with his hands, at least in his heart. And it just drives him to despair. He gets some encouragement by the priest who leads the monastery to focus on Jesus. And he begins to read the New Testament once he discovers a Bible in in the library. He begins to read the New Testament. Understand that Bibles were extremely rare and very expensive. And so there aren't many around, but he discovers one in the library of the monastery and he begins to read it. Now, this is highly unusual. Monks would go through their entire lives without reading the Bible. People of faith would go through their entire lives without ever seeing a Bible. It was very uncommon for the average human, average man or woman in the the church to ever know anything about the actual words of the Bible other than what was read occasionally in the church. It's funny because we have so many of them that they've become commonplace to us and the value of them has dropped dramatically. Interesting. He begins to read it, and as he begins to read it, he becomes more and more convinced of the idea that the key here is faith. He begins to discover in the book of Romans things about, the, about grace and faith that he begins to understand as the key to what it means to follow after Jesus, what it means to follow God. And he begins to make a change in his life. He's a very committed monk. He's not left the monastery. He's not even interested in leaving the monastery. He wants to, to stay a part of this mother church that he's always known and always been embraced by. At 27, he's sent to Rome as a representative from his community, from his faith community. He walks the entire way. He stays with other monks in other monasteries and he discovers that not everybody's as serious about their faith as he is. And as he starts seeing the behavior of others and as he gets closer and closer to Rome, he starts to see the opulence of some of these other monasteries and some of these other monks. And the opulence bothers him because he's been carefully even humiliating himself for the sake of his faith for years now. When he arrives in Rome... one of the recent declarations in Rome was that the stairs on this uh, slide, those are stairs, they they look a little weird on the slide, but those are stairs, that the stairs on this slide were actually miraculously moved from Pilate's home in Jerusalem to Rome and reset there and a church was built around them and that these were the very stairs that Jesus had descended from Pilate's house to the cross on his way to the cross. And so it was declared that anyone who, was a, uh, who wanted to, if they would climb these stairs on their knees, they would be completely exonerated of their sins. So he found himself going up these stairs. And as he was climbing up these stairs on his knees, one by one, begging God for forgiveness, coverings of grace and righteousness, he, he's pleading with God in the turmoil of his own mind where he thinks he understands faith and righteousness and God and he's been reading the scriptures and yet he's so deeply embroiled in the way he's done church for his entire life that he can't really separate the two. While he's climbing up these stairs, a single phrase from the scripture comes to his mind. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Just the last phrase of the verse, the just shall live by faith. And he stopped on the step where he was. And he repeated in his mind what he thought, what he'd heard, what the Spirit had revealed. 
And as he processed and processed and processed, he couldn't go any further up a set of stairs on his knees that were supposed to exonerate him. He realized the foolishness of what he was doing that day. He realized how silly it was for him to be crawling up a set of stairs thinking that this was going to set him right with God. He'd been reading the book of Romans. He'd been reading the Old Testament. He'd been teaching on Galatians. He stood up that moment, at that moment, and with that text getting louder and louder in his head, descended the stairs never to go back to that sort of lifestyle again. It's a moment of pivot. It's a moment of change, which for all intents and purposes as he saw it that day was just about him. But 500 years later, we see the fruit of that moment in the Protestant movement that has now spread that one idea, the just shall live by faith across the world. One guy, one text, one moment. I told you at the end of this month we're going to be celebrating the next major event in his life. Guy shows up to his town selling church fundraiser for the building program. <laughs> selling indulgences. It's a great term in indulgence. Selling the right to sin without God counting it against you. In fact, the teacher, Tetzel, who had come to his town was such a great salesman, he said the moment the coin drops into the box, the life of the sinner is rushed out of purgatory and into heaven. The moment it touches the box, your sins are forgiven and heaven is secure. Man, wouldn't you be lining up to drop your quarter in? That's what people did. Thousands and thousands of dollars being raised. The, the equivalence of millions being raised. For St. Peter's Cathedral. Luther began to preach against this guy and got more and more upset and more and more frustrated and the, combat, the combat between the two of them got louder until Luther went that day because the next day they were going to be gathering there for All Saints Day and there would be a large processional people from all around in the church. So he nailed his objections, 95 of them, I would, I would suggest for some reading this afternoon, go ahead and read through the 95 thesis. They're available online. 95 on some paper nailed to the door, this bulletin board door at the church, knowing that as people came by, they would read it. Now, Luther had one other good thing going for him. He was born around the time when Gutenberg's press became available to, the, to mankind. And so Luther's 95 Thesis, having been mailed to a few of his friends, is immediately translated into German, written in Latin originally, immediately translated into German and begins to be published and sent around Germany. In two weeks, it covers Germany. In a month to six weeks, it covers Christendom. And an earthquake begins to move inside Christendom. He had no intent of making a new church, of splitting the one he was in. He simply wanted to reform things. This was silly. Selling indulgences, selling the opportunity to be forgiven. How crazy is this? And he just wanted this to be straightened out. It was a bad idea, and he thought it should be stopped, and so he published his objections. This sent him on a path of conflict that would run through the rest of his life. By the end of his life, he has fainting spells. He has all manner of stress-related illnesses. It's a pretty, pretty miraculous that he lives to be 62 years old, given his diet and his behavior. 
and the stress level he had. Within a couple of years, he's brought before a bunch of cardinals and a local prince. This is one of the most famous things that ever happened in his life. I doubt that he was quite as posed as he is in the picture. I like this picture because he's so posed. It's like, really? I don't think he was doing that. Maybe. Maybe he had the moment. Maybe he thought, I should pose for this. People are going to think about this later. I have my doubts. But in the midst of the conversation, being pressed and pressed and pressed to recant his divisions, his, his, his commentaries against the Pope. He had said the Pope doesn't have the authority to forgive. Only Jesus does. The Pope doesn't have the authority to take away your sins. Only God does. And as he had made these things, everybody was afraid that he, the Pope was going to lose his authority. And sure enough, it was coming. And Luther, in that final moment, as they're pressing and pressing and pressing him, and they're threatening him with death, as they're pushing against what he said, they said, you have the opportunity to recant. Recant or die. Not being a guy who, early in his life, certainly, had any interest in long speeches and confrontations. He avoided it. He just wanted to walk with God. That's all he wanted. He said to them in the now famous words, Here I stand with what I've read and what I've learned of Jesus and the peace that has come to me as a result of understanding His grace over me. Here I stand. I can do no other. This is not wagging your finger in the face of the authorities. This is a heart won and transformed by conviction. Discovery. The reading of Scripture. From this man comes the foundational pillars of what you know as Protestantism today. That your faith it will be built on Scripture alone. That your salvation will be through faith alone. Your salvation will be by grace alone, in Christ alone. From this man's moment, when it finally dawned on him, through the fog of his culture and his experience, it finally became aware, he finally became aware that the just will live by faith. So it leaves me with one last question. What is your moment? In the faith journey, there's the first step. But it's never the only step. Some of you today might be really taking the first step or retaking that first step. You know, you, you believed for a while and then you kind of walked away from it and now you're kind of trying to decide if you're going to do it again. And this may be your day to choose this moment. The just, under the covering of Jesus, walk by faith in Him into the future that only He knows. Some of you need to take this next step for the next thing. God is calling you to a change in your life. God is calling you to a change of lifestyle, a change of job, a change of direction, a change of behavior. God is challenging you to make a next step. Is this your moment? What's ringing in your ears? What is God speaking to you as you, as you sit here this morning? 
trying to decide, is this my moment? The only question beyond that one is what will you do with the moment? Will you follow? Or will you stay there on your knees, climbing the stairs? Will you go back to the money changers tomorrow when he resets his table? Will you go back to buy the sheep you know is a scam tomorrow because it's your practice and your habit? Or will your life change? Because you've decided to do what God has called you to do. It's a step. It's not, it's not a, a, a marathon that has to be run before the covering and blessing cover and grace of God is yours. It's just a step. A small, sometimes even inconsequential feeling step. Okay? I'll go with you today. And tomorrow we'll talk this over again. Father in heaven, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Certainly those of the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, but the followers who came after them by the millions. Some whose last breaths were taken in flames somewhere. Some who suffered immense persecution for their testimony and their witness. Father, that today we, put in a, we sit in a pretty safe place. We're a pretty protected group. Help us to draw from the courage of others or the courage of the moment to just trust you for this next step. Whether it's new or it's just a continuation. Put to walk close with Jesus one more day. And wake up tomorrow to talk to you about it again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.